Thank you. Thank you, Ian. I don't know about you, but I love that image. The mental image that gives to me is uh, when I bring my whole heart to the Lord and seeking Him, even in the midst of my trouble, perhaps especially in the midst of it, that uh, He is already there, knowledgeable of uh, the issue I am facing, the struggle that I'm having, and He is already reaching and bending and coming toward us. Because that's the way the Bible describes God, is the one who always takes the initiative with us. He takes the first step toward us, and so we just simply respond to what he's already doing and about. And so thank you, Ian, for that. I I love that picture. Another thing I I have loved uh, in the past, I was so sad when it uh, went off of the air on television uh, but for several, uh, for some time at least, uh, my one of my favorite shows was a home renovation show called Extreme Home Makeover. Does anybody ever remember watching that? I, I mean, it was shameless in the way it would pull on your heartstrings, and but I loved. I was just a sucker for it. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the show, it had Ty, just a big personality, and. Um, they would come in and they would lay out the story of a family, usually, that uh, great hardship had befallen them and uh, they uh, are in need of, of a new home for whatever reason. And in one week's time, Ty and his team would come in and they would demolish the old home and they would erect the new home. And uh, it was amazing. And all these different people had parts to play and different responsibilities. And you'd see these literally armies of people walking. You know, they made a big production, of course, out of it. These people in all matching T-shirts parading down the street to come and uh, do the work. And um, I kind of like the destructive part of it, you know, pulling in all the stuff down. They'd always have creative ways. They'd have big wrecking balls or big giant uh, front-end loaders that come crashing down and... Uh, but really, I ended up enjoying also the end of it because the family would be sent off for that week on vacation. And when the house was done, they would be brought back in a limousine. But there in front of the house, they couldn't see it because a big giant charter diesel bus was parked. And, you know, Ty would whip the crowd into a frenzy as a good showman can. And uh, he that bus would be sitting there... Rumbling, and all of a sudden, you remember he probably, if you remember, he had his bullhorn, and finally he would get to to the punchline. He would say, "Bus driver, say it with me, move that bus, the bus out of the way," and the family would be there, laying eyes for the first time on this newly constructed home, and just the responses were remarkable. They would be jumping for joy and tears of gladness and sometimes falling to the ground overwhelmed with the gift. And I don't know everything that happened behind the scenes, but I loved every minute of every one of those shows. I couldn't help it. I know it probably says more about me than it does about the show, but I like to think You know, you live vicariously sometimes in events like that. And I like to think, what would I respond if I uh, was in their shoes? And I would just be overwhelmed with the expression of extravagance that was given toward me. Wouldn't you? It wasn't deserved, I don't think, in any way. I I certainly didn't uh, do anything for it, or wouldn't have. You know, when we witness extravagance... Sometimes there are different responses to that, at least on, there are probably many, but on the two different poles of responding to extravagance, there are gasps of wonder and delight and awe. 
Um, on the TV theme, the uh, Downton Abbey finale, not just the season, but the whole show finale. I, I feel for John Shouse. I know he must be so sad. I'm not going to tell him. He's probably seen it, but John loved Downton Abbey. I did too. It was so great. But the finale is there. If you haven't seen it you want to, plug your ears. Spoiler alert right here. But at the very end of the this movie, um, the, um, the Earl and Countess of Grantham, their middle daughter, finally something good is happening for her. I know. You're just like, yes! Finally, soap operas, aren't they great? The Earl and Countess of Grantham, they, they come and pull up to the uh, Marquis of Hexham's palace. Now, this is the Earl and the Countess of Grantham. Now, they live in a palace of their own. But the expressions on their face when they pull into that estate and looking at everything and the opulence and the magnificence of it all, the extravagance... Their expressions are one of wonder and gasps of awe. Just the exchanges that they have, it was wonderful. So that's one end of the poll. Okay, you can unplug your ears. Uh, that, that is done. Uh, so one end, when you experience maybe or witness extravagance, is gasping for wonder. The other one is what we did with some of the kids in our Sunday school class this morning. Is, uh, we did a game called Grateful or Grumbling, and we had the kids, we shared some scenarios with them, and we said, if this is a scenario where you would not be happy with, you would fold your arms, and you'd grumble, grumble, grumble. And so they had some practice with that this morning. We were talking about the, uh, the Israelites and their difficulty transitioning out of Egypt uh, into the, the new uh, way that God had for them, and uh, sometimes they would complain and not be happy with the way God was working his plan out. But sometimes our response to extravagance can be grumbling. We might say things like, ah, that's just over the top, or it's silly, or it's wasteful, or it's just too much. So gasping for wonder and grumbling can be two opposite ends of the poles. Sometimes perhaps the motivation in giving to someone else extravagantly can be, at least in my my observation, sometimes giving extravagantly to somebody else can be motivated just by a desire to impress somebody. I want to impress you with the amount that I can give or with the amount that I've accumulated. That, that can be one motivator. Another motivator can be just because I want to help. I, I've given something that certainly is undeserved, but because there's a real need and I really want to help. And I, God has provided the means for me to do that. And so I want to give extravagantly. Praise God when we're in that opportunity and position. Sometimes we might give extravagantly because we want to honor somebody. We want to communicate somehow to them how much we appreciate who they are, something maybe they've done, an accomplishment that they have uh, attained, or a way that they have blessed us. Today, in our Bible passage of John chapter 12, I invite you to open there, we're going to witness an extravagant gift it was an extravagant gift offered to Jesus, and it flowed out of a grateful heart. An extravagant gift offered to Jesus from a grateful heart. John chapter 12. And what a great way as we continue to move through the season of Lent and prepare ourselves for a Holy Week to come and Easter and next Sunday with Palm Sunday. But here's what John chapter 12, verse 1 says. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. 
Martha, who was Lazarus' sister, she served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary, who is the other sister of Lazarus, she took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, he objected. Why, this, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Chapter 12 in the Gospel of John stands between the raising of Lazarus from the dead back to life and Jesus himself going to the cross for his own death. Chapter 12 is rather a strategic chapter in all of the Gospel of John. We're going to be spending some time in the Gospel of John over the next many weeks together. Uh, One commentator describes or talks about some of the, the ways Jesus is described in chapter 12, and one of them that we're focusing on today is Jesus as magnificent king. Jesus as magnificent king. And out of this passage, don't be concerned, I don't think Jesus is advocating a neglect for the poor. Because the poor was something that his heart beat so deeply about. In fact, when he first described his own calling and opened himself up and announced that he was the Messiah, it was out of that great text of coming to uh, release the captives and give sight to the blind, those who were needy, he had come to assist. But instead of advocating neglect for the poor, what he's really highlighting is the appropriateness of this tremendous act by Mary. An act at its heart, I believe, was one of whole life dedication to him. That's what Jesus wants to highlight in response to Judas's critique and complaint. But this act by Mary was a costly act. In fact, it's described as having the value of one whole year's salary. So some of you have uh, probably put together a rainy day fund or you're saving for your retirement or maybe preparing for uh, a child's college education. Could you imagine taking out of that the equivalent to one year's salary and simply lumping it down towards someone? Judas, in his complaint is not concerned with Mary. He's not concerned with, I don't think, Mary's act. You see, Judas's critique is the same as most critiques that are done in the name of accountability but really aren't done in love. There is real biblical accountability that's done in and because of love. Where someone might love another so much, where they see something out of alignment with your life and the calling of Jesus and out of love, and accountability, you might go to that person and talk with them and pray with them and for them. But accountability that lacks love is the same as the critique of Judas. And it's motivated out of a self, uh, it's self-motivated out of a concern for his own desires. And that's the kind of uh, critique that uh, becomes destructive within a church 
fellowship. But here Mary comes with this costly act. Maybe her family was wealthy. Maybe the this jar, this container of this perfume, of this ointment, maybe it was a family heirloom, something precious to their family. Perhaps it was even her dowry. Now, we don't know that for sure at all, but if that was something as uh, critical to her life and future in her day, uh, a woman without a dowry basically gave up her opportunities for being wed. And if indeed she was giving her own dowry to the Lord, part of what is being communicated is that there's nothing in her life that is more important than her relationship with the Lord Jesus. You see, there's no possession in her life that is more valuable than honoring this relationship with Jesus. There's no relationship in her life, human relationship, that's more important or more valuable to her than honoring and giving glory to the Lord Jesus. See, the value of this material um, could have cost her a great deal, and it was a costly ointment. That's why such a big deal was made about its expense. But you see, Mary is one whose heart has been captured by the living Jesus. And when Jesus captures your heart, he rearranges your life. He takes your, your old perspectives on things and he refashions them. Your thinking becomes different. The things that draws your heart becomes different. The ways you respond in life become different because your life is transformed. Literally, the shape of who you are becomes different and more and more over time reflecting the life of Jesus himself. And that is the picture we get in Mary. What a wonderful example of godliness for us. Not only was her act costly, but it was also a humble act. You see, she lets down her hair, which in polite society in her day was just not done in public. She would use her own hair to wipe his feet. You see, the, even the anointing of her feet, Matthew and Mark describe the anointing as one over his head, but she anoints his feet, and that's the emphasis in the way John describes it. And I think partly to help us understand that what is being communicated not only is Mary's willingness to say, uh, Jesus, nothing is more important in my life than you, but it's also a communication that she understands the glory of God and her position before him. She understands who Jesus is and who she is before him. So she has no problem coming and washing his feet. Even the act of washing feet was a humiliating act in her day, but she had no problem doing it. It's interesting, isn't it, how just a chapter later in John chapter 13, the disciples have to be taught and led in this act of humility of washing others' feet. I know for us, the opportunity for such an extravagant act like this or something else, not all of us every day are going to get to tear down a house in a week and rebuild a new one for somebody. Have you had the chance to do that? I've not. I probably never will. There may be some opportunities in your life for extravagant acts, but for most of us, they're going to be somewhat rare or special occasions, aren't they? But, but, the attitude behind them is something cultivated every day. 
You see, Mary is pictured in Luke chapter 10 as sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's one who is pictured as uh, one captivated by his teaching and her life dedicated to his mission. And so in this event, it becomes just a natural outflow of what she's already done and already being and becoming. Though extravagant acts might be rare, the attitude behind them are cultivated every single day. In the way that you approach the Lord Jesus, the way that you discipline your life to be with him, the way that you uh, pursue him in prayer and in your own spiritual disciplines. What does your life and your actions, what do they say about you and your devoted life to the Lord Jesus? We see what they communicate about Mary, but this is a question I've been asking all week of myself, and I ask it of you now. Is the giving of your money or your time or your life's willing response back to God, what does it say about your life completely dedicated to Jesus? Does it communicate, like I think Mary's trying to communicate, that Jesus really is the magnificent and noble and worthy king of your life? I invite you this week to chew on that question. I invite you this week to pray about that question and to seek how God's Spirit might work with you this week in answering that question. Father, we thank you for this morning together. We thank you for your great work of love and grace. I thank you for how Mary teaches us about devotion. I thank you that we can be motivated and and have a picture of a life completely devoted and captivated by you. And how nothing, we, we ought to hold our things loosely in our hands. And so help us to do that. Help us to do well with what you've entrusted to us. Because at the end of the day, we have one person to whom we must give a response, and that is you. And so may our consciences by your Holy Spirit be forged and formed. And may the the life that we live give picture and testimony about the Lord that we love. May it be so this day and always we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.